Amen. You may be seated. We continue in our study through the book of Mark, and I invite you to turn back to Mark chapter 12. It's a chapter that we've been in now for three weeks. This will be our third week in this passage, and as you recall, this chapter deals with one day, a, a day that really occurred in human history. It is Wednesday of the Passion Week. It's the Wednesday of the week that Jesus Christ came to fulfill His ultimate purpose on this earth. Two days after this occasion in chapter 12 of Mark is when our Jesus will die on the cross in our place for our sins. And the Sunday after this Wednesday is the glorious day that our Savior Jesus Christ will rise from the dead. We are marching our way to that resurrection moment. And we'll be working through these passages through the rest of the book of Mark in the coming weeks in a couple of months. We find Jesus being questioned. This is the third round, the third wave of questions that have been brought to him. As we saw two weeks ago, the Pharisees and the Herodians joined together and came after Jesus with a question about paying taxes. Jesus responded with a mind-boggling answer, render unto Caesar what is to Caesar's, but render unto God what belongs to God. Last week we saw that the Sadducees came. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection, which will happen four days after this event. They do not believe in the resurrection, and they asked Jesus about marriage in heaven and a woman that had seven husbands that were all brothers who fulfilled the Leverite obligation that Moses set forth in the Old Testament. And Jesus boggled the minds of those people by saying, there is no marriage in heaven. Your question is not the right question. Now, today, we have a final question, a final test, and then we're going to move into some other directions where Jesus teaches. But today, we have a a single interrogator. We have a scribe that steps forward amongst the crowds. There's not a lynch party here like the other inquisitors were of Jesus. We have a man singly standing out amongst the crowd with a very, very important question. In fact, I'm going to say that it is a question that you and I even ask and need and want the answer to. So this morning, we're going to be taught by Jesus what I'm going to say is the core of Christianity. What is the bottom line of Christianity? And Jesus is going to tell us that it is twofold, love God and love neighbor. And today, we will also see that Jesus Christ himself actually lived out what he taught. So look with me in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. Let's read the text together uh, out of respect and love and reverence for God. Here's what Mark wrote as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing what he answered, seeing that he answered them well, he asked them him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that He is one, and there is no other besides Him. 
and to love Him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So, Father, would you help us in this moment? Help me to speak faithfully from your word. And help me and my brothers and sisters in this room and to receive your word with soft hearts and limber necks. And joy, and I pray, Father, that what is proclaimed here this morning will send us into more authentic worship of you. And I pray this all for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Well, we have a single interrogator that steps forward. It's not a, a party as the other inquisitors were in the other two occasions that we've looked at. We've got a scribe that steps up and he heard the disputes between the Sadducees and Jesus and the the Pharisees and the Herodians and Jesus, and he saw that Jesus answered well. He admired the way Jesus jousted with these inquisitors. And so he steps forward, and he asks Jesus a question as well. Let me define this scribe for you. A scribe was a specialist in that day in interpreting the law of God. Uh, oftentimes, and we'll even read a passage this morning, scribes were also called lawyers, <laughs> Because they specialized in God's law. And so they lawyered day in and day out, helping people understand God's written commands. A scribe became a scribe after the age of 40. He could not be under 40. And usually he belonged to the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Most of the time he was a Pharisee party member. And after 40, becoming a scribe, he was enabled to be a member of the Sanhedrin, the 71 men that oversaw the spiritual health and and condition of the nation of Israel. So we've got a man here that is highly qualified to ask Jesus about the law. Um, we need to look at how he comes to Jesus. I think he comes to Jesus differently than the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians. I think there's a hint of respect. He's still testing Jesus, but he comes to Jesus with some respect he has witnessed Jesus effectively answer and refute the other inquisitors. And so he's not as hostile as they were. And he steps out even by himself. He doesn't hide in a crowd. He steps forward. And it's kind of a one-on-one -on -one moment with an audience watching. And he asks perhaps the most basic and the most simple question. I, I think he asks the question that even you and I wonder. What is the greatest commandment? What is the most important commandment of all, Jesus? It's a fitting question from a lawyer. He would love to make sure that he is tracking right with Jesus. I do think there's a test here. Matthew's version of this story tells that there is a test at play here. I think this man would love to trap Jesus and get him to contradict Moses or to maybe even lift himself above Moses. These Israelites revered Moses to the max, and he would love to set these people in opposition to Jesus as Jesus deals with this question of the greatest law. You need to understand where this scribe is coming from. There's some interesting facts about the Israelites and the scribes and the Pharisees and how they viewed the law back then. 
the Old Testament law that the Jews lived with in the Torah, first five books of the Bible, consisted, according to them, of 613 commands. How did they get 613? They, did they methodically count through uh, Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy? Not exactly. I think they did sift through those scriptures. But uh, as we look at Jewish historians, they credit uh, the 613 to this kind of logic. The Israelites and the scribes, if you will, counted the number of letters in the Hebrew Decalogue. What's the Decalogue? That's the Ten Commandments. And so if you count in Hebrew letters the number of letters in the Ten Commandments, there are 613 of them. And thus, these scribes and Pharisees determined that there must be 613 commandments. And so they sifted through and probably made the commandments match the number that they discovered in the Decalogue. Of the 613 commandments, there are 365 thou shall nots. 365 prohibitions, do not do these things. And there are 248 thou shalls is how they divided them up. And so here comes a scribe to Jesus saying of these 613, which one takes precedent over all? Tell me, Jesus. Which commandment is over everything? If we only kept one, what must it be? It's a trap. He wants Jesus to declare the bottom line, and he is hopeful that it will contradict Moses. Well, let's look at Jesus' response to this. We've had a single interrogator step forward in this scribe, and now we're going to watch Jesus give a comprehensive answer. And he is going to address this man's question straight up. Verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He goes right to the Old Testament, to the Torah, Deuteronomy, chapter 6, 4 and 5. We read a portion of this this morning. It is known as the Shema, the Jewish Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word for the word hear. And the very first word in Jesus' quote is, Hear, O Israel. And those words that Moses wrote long ago were so revered by these Israelites that it became the foundation of Israelite worship of God. It was the core. And by the way, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is a declaration of something that is core to Christianity. And that word is monotheism. Theism is, is God. Mono is one. One God. All of Christianity from the beginning was established on monotheism. And you need to understand that Moses wrote that, and these people are hearing Jesus quote this in this day 2,000 years ago in a very polytheistic world. People worshipped all kinds of gods. This was written in the Greek language. You are very familiar with Greek mythology and all the Greek gods that people worshipped. 
Jesus is going all the way back to Deuteronomy and quoting monotheistic words that God inspired Moses to write. He is one and there is only one, period. That phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is the opening phrase in this day and age to every Jewish synagogue service that ever happened. They began with those words, period, without fail. If you were a devout Jew in this day and age, you recited this once in the morning and once in the evening. It was the bookend praise and worship that you offered God every single day you drew breath. And so this is a core phrase, a core sentence to the Jewish religion in the audience that Jesus is speaking before in this moment. And he says after that, he reads on the passage, he says... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I want you to consider the elements there, heart, soul, mind, and strength. You need to be careful here. We could chase our, our tail without end trying to establish what is the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength. We could get real tricky and get real sidetracked. That is a simple way for God to instruct us to say, we are to love God with all of our being. All of us. All of our existence. All of our personhood. Everything about us. Our emotions, our intellect, our physical strength. Everything is to be devoted to worshiping the one God. That's his answer. I want to make an application to this this morning because this does hit us right where we sit, right where we live day in and day out. We are prone to stray away from this very simple but very full command in a number of ways. I I took an inventory of my life, the history of my life, and even the current days that I live in. How am I prone to wander away from this Love for God with all of my being. And and here are some possible ways. Sometimes we're tempted to live in such a way that we love the job, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a little g, God, but love our job, our God, with all of us. We, We fall prey to that sometimes. We're tempted to love our work more than we love our God. Uh, How about love your assets, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, whether it be property, cars, boats, guns, you name it. We tend to polish and cherish and idolize the things of this world instead of the God who gave us life. And so we love the assets, our God, in ways that we should only love God. Uh, We could do this with children. (laughs) As parents, we are tempted to love the children, our God, with all that we have. And we are not even as something as noble as our children, a gift from God. We are not to love them more than we love God. I could go on and on. How about this last one? Love yourself, your God, with all your it's pretty convicting. 
I think we're all right there. We, some of us hate our job. Some of y'all hate your job. <laughs> Truly. Some of you despise your assets, but all of us are tempted to love ourselves, our God, with all of ourselves. Let's be very honest about that. And here we have a command this morning. We want to know the bottom line of Christianity. We are to love only our maker and our creator and our sustainer with all of us. So this morning, I, I got to do this all week. This morning, you need to join me in what I've done this last week, and that is take an audit of my life, of my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. What am I devoting those things to? And if it is not God, praise Him, because this morning is a wake-up call and a call of correction for you to love Him authentically through and through. The second thing Jesus says, that's, that's the first. He then says in verse 31, there's another place in Moses' law that I can answer your question, Mr. Lawyer. It's found in Leviticus 19.18. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a direct quote from, like I said, Leviticus 19.18. Here's the whole verse. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's the verse. Jesus expanded this because in look in this verse here it says against the sons of your own people you shall not bear a grudge but you shall love your neighbor so in the old testament context he's speaking about israelites loving israelites but jesus expands this beyond just israel the nation the people of god to all mankind i want you to turn with me to luke chapter 10 it's it's a quick turn to the right in your bibles Go to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to listen to Jesus in a totally different context, in a totally different circumstance, speak the same truth that he does with this lawyer here on Wednesday of the Passion Week. So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, we'll read to 30. And behold, a lawyer, there's our word, there's our scribe right there. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And to, he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Here's the scribe getting it right. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Sounds good so far. We're tracking just right. But, verse 29, he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Let's qualify this, Jesus. Who exactly is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And it continues, and we know this to be the parable of the good Samaritan. The Samaritan was an, an opponent of the Israelites. And the Samaritan helps a man on the side of the road who was supposed to be his enemy. And Jesus' point in this whole text is, your neighbor is anyone who draws breath and is a human being made in the image of God. 
So yes, it starts in Leviticus as an instruction from God to Israel on how they are to relate to their fellow Israelites. But Jesus, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, takes it and says, this is how we are to treat all of humanity. All of humanity is our neighbor. And so who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is your spouse. Let that one sink in here. Your neighbor is your spouse. Your neighbor is your child. Your neighbor is your mom and your dad. Your uncle and your grandfather. Your neighbor is your co-worker. Your neighbor is your enemy in town. Your neighbor is an absolute stranger that you don't know but you come upon. You are to love these people. That's Jesus' instruction. Anyone who bears the image of God is whom you are to love, and so you're to love any and all. What does it look like to love your neighbor? That's fine. We've defined neighbor, but we need to really talk this morning about what it looks like to fulfill this, the greatest commandment, love God, love neighbor. I think there are two ways that I can show this morning that we are to love neighbor. And, and I think one is a beginning way and one is on the other end of the spectrum and not an ending way, but an ongoing way. There are thousands upon thousands of ways in between. We're to love our neighbor by encouraging them and praying for them and building them up and instructing them and correcting them and disciplining them. Yes, all of those. But really and truly, if we look at human life as we know it, there are two ways that we fulfill this greatest commandment. And here they are. Number one, through evangelism. You and I are to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with our neighbor. That is the ultimate expression of our love for them. Why? We know that all of mankind is at odds with God. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the greatest thing that we can do to show our love for God and for our neighbor is to go be people who bring about the reconciliation between man and God. And so I love you, and because I love you, I tell you that you have wronged God, you have sinned against Him, you have violated His commandments, and He is at odds with you, and the penalty for your sin against Him is death. But God has good news for you. He has provided in your place a death, a death through his own son, Jesus Christ, on a cross. Even though he committed no sin, he died. And if you believe that he died in your place, you are forgiven and the death penalty is off of you and you will live with him forever. And I say this to you because I love you. It's the beginning of loving neighbor. We don't stop there, by the way. After he died for you, he rose on the third day. And in rising from the dead, he defeated sin and death forever. And he's going to come again one day. And I want you to be ready for that day. So in my love for you, I ask you, would you believe in Jesus Christ? In his death, burial, and resurrection in your place. It's the greatest expression of love that I could ever give to you that you could ever give to that family member that you really struggle to love, that co-worker that you can hardly exist with, 
that stranger that you may never see again. That is the greatest way for you to fill this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 10.1, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That needs to define who we are. Our heart's desire and prayer to God is for the mankind that we encounter that are made in His image to be saved from the sins that they've committed against Him. That's love. And that's what made Paul tick. Well, here's the second. We want people to be forgiven by God because we love God and we love people. We want God to have a lot of followers because we love Him and we want people to not spend eternity in hell away from Him because we love them because they bear His image. The second one is this. We must be, if we're going to love neighbor as self, we must be forgivers. That is what the gospel is all about. We loved our neighbor to share the gospel with them because they need forgiveness. We need to live out that forgiving act in our relationships with our neighbors. And so through thick and thin... We forgive those who wrong us. We live the gospel out in our relationships with our neighbors. Matthew eighteen twenty one, Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, perhaps? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times. We cannot love neighbor if we cannot forgive neighbor. To not forgive neighbor is to hate neighbor. To not evangelize neighbor is to hate neighbor. And at the heart of our evangelism and at the heart of our relationships with each other, fallen that we are is forgiveness. That is what Christianity is all about. Forgiveness. So are you a lover of God and a lover of man? The answer will be found in your view of your forgiveness from God and your forgiveness toward man. It's a double love. Love God, love neighbor. It's vertical towards God. It's horizontal towards neighbor. And we must be fully about both. Know this for sure. I promise you this. Your neighbor, and we define who your neighbor is, your neighbor will sin against you this week. Your wife will sin against you. Husband, you will wrong your wife this week. Kids, so on and so forth. Your neighbor will sin against you and God this week. Peter asked Jesus that question, should I forgive him seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 Seven times. Well, Peter also wrote this in 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> Peter knows there's going to be a multitude of sins between neighbors. And we are to keep on through those sins, loving one another earnestly, husband and wife, earnestly. Because a multitude of sins are coming your way and the love that you show for those that wrong you will cover those sins. Because that will demonstrate the blood 
that came from our Christ that covered all of our sins. So we've got a a challenge here to be proclaimers of the gospel out of love for people that are at odds with God. And we are to be proclaimers of the gospel in how we forgive one another when certainly we will wrong one another. I would tell you that the the core of a good marriage is forgiveness. And forgiveness is not going to happen if there's not a love for God first and then a subsequent love for neighbor. So in Jesus' mind, the two commandments are one. They are inseparable. He says, there is no other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. So he takes these two commandments, love God and love neighbor, and he melds them into one and says there's no greater one commandment. That's how big both of these are. I'm going to tell you, you cannot love God without loving your neighbor. It is absolutely impossible. Don't try it. You will fail. We are to love God, and because we love God, we love those that bear His image. And all of mankind is made in the image of God. And so we love God, and we love God's image bearers, and it takes both commandments to realize the one will of the one God. It's simple. Matthew's account, I really like what Matthew says in this same scenario. Matthew recorded it just a little different. Matthew twenty-two forty, he writes, Jesus said, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Wow. Think about that for a moment. Jesus is speaking to a lawyer who is an expert in the Old Testament law. And he says, loving God and loving neighbor is so important that upon those two commandments, the entire Old Testament is built. In other words, Old Testament Scripture, if this is not embraced, can be cast aside. Every bit of it. Every word in the Old Testament All of your 613 commandments, Mr. Lawyer, if you want to go that number, are built upon this. And they're rendered inoperable if you do not embrace these two. That's saying something. That's saying a lot. But I want you to know also that this is not just an Old Testament truth. Our dear Alan read 1 John 4, 19 to 21. I'm going to read it for you again. Listen to this one. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen. And he cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's New Testament, book of 1 John, written some 60 years after Jesus is dealing with this scribe, we think. And the conclusion that I draw from that, I think rightly, is on these two commandments depend all of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The whole Bible, the whole of Christianity stands upon loving God and loving neighbor. How are you doing on these commands? In your marriage, in your family, immediate and distant, in your workplace, Strangers, in your evangelism, in your heart of forgiveness towards those that wrong you a multitude of times. How are you doing 
on these commandments because Jesus says this is the core of Christianity. We've got to get this exactly right. To love our neighbor is to love that which God loves. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loves the world, if he loves the world, and that's a reference to the people of the world, we, in love of him, must love the object of his love. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a tremendous love that God has for humanity. And we call humanity neighbor. And we are to love to the extent that God loved them. Love of God expresses itself in our love for neighbors. If we really love God, the overflow of that will be that I love you. If it doesn't begin with the love of God, I am not going to love you. Because I'm a fallen human being. And so love of God is a prerequisite. It puts us in a position to love our neighbor. And the love of God establishes the possibility that I could even love you. (laughs) It all starts with my love and relationship with God. And so here's one more point I want to make before we move on. The love of God and the love of neighbor absolutely cannot be divided. You cannot split these two loves apart and say, I'm going to do this one really well right now, but I'm going to forget that one. And then later on, you know, I'm going to go love neighbor and I'm going to not love God. They cannot be separated, period. You cannot genuinely love God and hate your neighbor. It is impossible. And it's an either or deal. And you can't hate your neighbor and love God. It's impossible. St. Augustine, 1,500 years ago, wrote something that I think applies beautifully even today. Here's what he said. He said, in quoting, Thou shalt not love Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He says, now you love yourself suitably when you love God better than yourself. Okay, you get that? You're loving God rightly when you love him more than you love yourself. What then you aim at in yourself, you must also aim at in your neighbor. Namely, that he may love God with a perfect affection. So there's our evangelistic effort. We want our neighbor to love God like I love God. So I'm going to go tell my neighbor about God so that I can be used by God to kindle that relationship. For you do not love him as yourself unless you try to draw him to that good which you yourself are pursuing. For this is the one good which has room for all of us to pursue. Love that. It's good for us to love God more than ourselves. And because we do that, we look at our neighbor and we say, I want the same for him. And in so doing, I will demonstrate my love to God and my love to neighbor. This has been the issue for 2,000 years ago when Jesus answers this lawyer and 1,500 years ago when St. Augustine quoted it. And it's true today in 2016. This is what we are to be about. 
So Jesus has just taught the most magnificent truth, the most profound, all-encompassing truth that there ever was. He has just answered this lawyer's questions about the law. You remember I said there's 613 laws in the law books of the scribes because of the letters in the Hebrew Ten Commandments. Well, do you understand that Jesus' answer here encompasses all of the Ten Commandments? Look at this. Love God is commandments one through four. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall have no idols or graven images. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And you shall honor the Lord's Sabbath. Four commandments that if we follow them, we are expressing our love to God by obeying him in those. And then we go to the next five. They're about loving neighbor. The first one is, commandment five, honor your father and your mother. And then we're not to murder, and we're not to commit adultery, and we're not to steal, and we're not to covet. These are all how we relate to neighbor. So the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, are really divided into two parts, love God and love neighbor. And that's where Jesus has gone to to answer this scribe's questions. And this scribe has a list of 613 laws that come from the same Decalogue and the number of Hebrew letters. It's really a fascinating thing to see Jesus meet these guys right where they're embedded in the Scriptures. Remember last week he said, do you not understand the Scriptures? And he went right to the Scriptures and described to them his answer. So now let's look finally in verse 32 at an answer applied. And there's really an amazing thing that happens here. Verse 32, the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. So that's a positive response. And I don't think there's sarcasm here because read on with me. You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is none other besides him. And we are to love him with all of ourselves. That's what he says. All of our understand our heart with all of our understanding with all the strength and we're to love one another's neighbor as oneself he's just affirmed jesus and i think he's doing it genuinely but then he says this all of that is great but is much more than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices it's great it is what we are to be about, and it is more important to love God and love neighbor than all of the whole burnt offering and sacrificial system that you established in the Old Testament. Wow. We need to understand that his conclusion is that most of the law, which is based on sacrificial systems and commands to burn different kinds of animals and grains and things of that nature... That's all important stuff, but it all is underneath the command to love God and love neighbor. And so this guy gets it. He fully understands. He understands what Samuel wrote. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So God throughout the scripture says, yes, I've got a sacrificial system. I want offerings and burnt offerings. They are all going to point to a day one day when there's going to be a lamb that will be sacrificed once and for all for the sins of mankind. And that lamb has a name, Jesus Christ. So all this sacrificial system points to him. But I don't want all of that if you don't love me and love your neighbor. I don't want any of it. 
I don't want your religious rituals. I want you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices because you love me and you love your neighbor. And together you're demonstrating that you need forgiveness from me. And all of this will be fulfilled one day when my son comes. I want that kind of worship, God says. Not the religious ritual stuff. So this morning, how do we make offerings and sacrifices to God while disobeying His voice? Can we do that today? We need to understand. This scribe understood it. We need to be with the scribe on this. And so in the context of this passage of Scripture, which says love God and love neighbor, we can bring sacrifice and burn offerings while violating that commandment, and God wants no part of it. We can do that if we're not careful. We can come to church. We can sing, and boy, did we sing Scripture this morning. We can sing that stuff with our hearts disengaged, but only our minds and tongues working. We can shake hands and hug, greet each other. How you doing? Fine. Wear all the facades. We can give our tithes and offerings. We can come to this table in just a moment. This is a sacred meal that we're going to celebrate together in a moment. We can do all of that as a sacrifice and a burnt offering while neglecting the two greatest commandments of loving God and loving neighbor. And God doesn't want any part of that from us. We're to come when we gather together, even on a Wednesday night, authentically loving God and loving neighbor, not checking off an attendance list that's in our own minds. And God knows our hearts. And so we need to make certain that we come right-hearted, yes, to the Lord's Supper in just a moment, but even on Sunday mornings to church. We've got to come here right-hearted because when we do gather as a congregation and sing and preach and give, that is a service of worship to God. That is our burnt offerings and sacrifices in modern times. And we can't be hypocritical coming in here with angst against God or our neighbor. And so... We may have something come that we've brought in here that is unresolved with God or with our neighbor, and we need to take Matthew 5:23 to heart. Jesus says, "So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother, then come and offer your gift of singing, preaching, of application." giving of remembering the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Leave it at the altar and go away and get right with your neighbor so that you can be right with your God and then come and God welcomes you to worship him. That's Christianity to the core, period. That's what Jesus says. And so you see here, God doesn't want burnt offerings and sacrifices. He wants obedience. And the obedience that he's called for this morning is to love him and to love one another. Last but not least, verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, so there's a good answer here, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He's not far, but he's not in either. (laughs) That could be a whole nother sermon. We won't go there. But I want you to understand this this morning. There is a warning right there. 
You can be an inch from heaven and still spend eternity in hell. This scribe has got to not just be close to heaven. He's got to go in to the kingdom of God. How might he do that? How might he go all the way into the kingdom of God? Well, there's only one way for him to do this. He must believe in the one who is speaking to him in this text. And he must understand that the one that is speaking to him not only is speaking truth, but two days from now on this Wednesday will live out this truth. Because Jesus Christ loved God so much so that he came in the form of a man. And Jesus Christ loved neighbor so much so that he bore a cross for sins that he did not commit. This scribe needs to believe in that Christ. And he's going to get to witness all of that being lived out in Jesus' life. Two days and five days, three day, two days and four days from the point in history that we're dealing with in Scripture. So after that, we see that no one dared to ask him any more questions. And we come to the end of the interrogation Wednesday of the Passion Week. And Jesus has silenced them so much with wisdom that they dared not pursue anything else with him. I'm going to pray as we close this portion. And then when we come up, I'm going to give a little bit more instruction as we prepare now to come and love God as we remember what he did for us, and love neighbor as we proclaim to one another that God loved us through his son, Jesus Christ. Father, we have been instructed so well this morning by the greatest teacher ever, your son, Jesus Christ, and he taught not only verbally, but he taught bodily. He taught with a broken body, and he taught with spilled blood. Father, as we remember that teaching, would you wash us and purify us and cause us to love you more and neighbor more for all of your glory. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.